Heavenly Father, this morning as we've worshiped you, I know you've heard our worship and it's been uh, rewarding and powerful to you. And now, God, as we open your word, may you speak to our hearts and challenge us and move us and, and help us understand you better. In Jesus' name, amen. This past Wednesday evening at 6 p.m., our facilities committee met for the very first time. I love our campus. It's a beautiful campus, but sometimes I walk around and I think, ah, we could do better. Do you ever feel that way? Don't say yes. We all know. Sometimes I walk around and I look at the landscaping and I think, man, how come the Catholic Church has better grass than we do? Come on. Uh, you, you've done this as well. And so we have a facilities committee, and the goal of the facilities committee is to look at our campus and to see what preventative maintenance we need to do, what bigger projects we need to accomplish, and how can we move our church a campus into a place that honors God even more than it does already. And so we met at six o'clock and we talked through our goals. And, and one part of our job that evening was to walk parts of the campus and just with fresh eyes, see what it looked like. You know how if you've been in a place for just a little while, it becomes normal what you're looking at. And so we tried to have fresh eyes as we walked the campus. We went into the, the 1970s and the 80s when we stepped into the church offices and we looked at the datedness and the carpet that stained. And we kept walking down the hallways, went to the, the uh, choir room, and we thought, what could we do in here? How can we make this more functional? How can we fit more people in here as our choir grows? We went outside, we, we looked at the landscaping and the grass and the irrigation and all the stuff that we're working on, we're getting there. We wound up back on the west wing over here, uh, walking down the halls, looking at the yellow stained glass, and we thought, how can we take that and modernize this place a little bit so we have one cohesive look on our campus? And as we were finishing up our meeting, two church members, Shannon Hill and Lisette Hubbard, they motioned to me. They were here for a different reason, and they said, hey, Matt. And so I came down the hallway to them, and, and, I, and I turned the corner, and on one of the couches was a young man, never seen him before in my life. And I said, hey, bud, what's up? And he said, hey, and I said, what's your name? He told me his name. How old are you? 19 years old. I said, are you from this area? And he said, no, I'm, I'm homeless. I said, oh, okay, all right. His girlfriend came around the corner. She's 24, also homeless. And I said, I, I said well, what can I help you with? And I thought, oh, can you give us some money for a, a bus ticket or, or can we get some food? And he simply said, do you know how to set up a tent? And I said, I do know how. Give me just a couple minutes. You just relax here and I'll come back. And so I finished up the meeting with our facilities team, went back into the church and there was the couple there that just enjoying the air conditioning, enjoying the couch and just taking a load off. And there they are. And, and uh, I said, hey, I, you got a tent? And they said, yeah, we do. We just, we just went down to one of these organizations that give homeless people tents and, and we, need, we need to set it up. We've never set a tent before. We, we don't know how to do it. Do you know how to do it? I said, yeah, come on. So we got in my truck. We drove off campus drove over to where they were going to set this tent up. We stopped the truck and I, I hiked with them back into the woods and we get back into this place and it looked like uh, someone had gotten into a fight with a tent. You had the tent over here, the rain fly over there, the poles over there, the stakes were strewn about. It was obvious that someone didn't know how to put a tent together and we've all been there. You ever tried to put a tent up that you've never put up before? It's a disaster every time. And as I'm trying to figure this out and starting to put the tent together, the guy says, are you some sort of Boy Scout? <laughs> he actually said, are you, are you a Boy Scout or are you a dad? And I said, I'm a dad. I didn't want to take him down the road of what Pathfinders is and all that. <laughs> so I get the tent set up and, and uh, it was a one-person tent. And I thought, you guys are going to be very cozy tonight. 
and as we were talking about camping, we commiserated what it's like to camp and sleep on the ground in September in Florida. See, I know what it's like to camp on the ground in September in Florida. I know what it's like with the heat and the humidity and the mosquitoes. Because it was just last weekend that the friend group in the Pathfinders had their very first camp out of the year. In fact, here's a picture of some of the, the crew here. Yeah, there they are. Some of you are in this picture. You're here this morning. In fact, if you're a friend in Pathfinders, just raise your hand. Let me see you. Okay, okay, we've got several here. I bet there's some in the balcony. Oh, not paying attention. Okay, that's fine. We got a crew here. And, and on Saturday evening, all the tents got set up. Everybody had their camp chairs. Everyone was sweating. It was beautiful. When it was time to go to sleep, well, actually, here's a picture of some of the tents. This is Sunday morning, perfectly in a Pathfinder line, looking good. There was an inspection that happened on Sunday morning. Saturday evening, my oldest son, Caffrey, and I climbed into our tent. We lied, lied down, and we, we were there for a few minutes, and it was hot. And, and your legs, they stick together, you know? When you pull them apart, they go... <laughs> You've been there. You know what it's like. Mosquitoes are buzzing around. You hear the cars driving by on 436. Your lights are flat. Kids are talking. You can't sleep like this. I'm not homeless, but I know what it's like to camp in September on the ground. I'm not homeless, but I can sympathize with them and empathize with this couple as they are, were about to start their evening in this tent on the ground in September in Florida. As we look at the heart of Christ today, his ability to sympathize and empathize with us may be the greatest connection between humans and God that we can ever have. If you've got your Bibles with you, I invite you to open them to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews, deep into the New Testament. In fact, uh, if you didn't bring a Bible with, me, with you, you can use the Blue Pew Bible in front of you and turn to page 848 where you'll follow along with me. Hebrews is such an interesting book. I love this book. It's, it's got such rich depthness, depth to who God is as it just describes him. Jesus specifically, he's sovereign, he's holy, he's uh, wonderful, he's above all. We don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. Uh, most people think it's Paul, and you can kind of tell by the, the word sentence structure in Hebrews and it matches all of Paul's writings. You can tell by the content that probably it was Paul. In fact, when the, the, uh, the council put all the books of the Bible into one book, the canon of the Bible, they tucked Hebrews at the very end of all of Paul's writings like it was his too. So even if you don't know who wrote it, we think it probably was Paul. And all throughout the book of Hebrews, the author describes these attributes of God. And when he gets to chapter four, where we are today, he says that God sees everything, and some point in time we will be held accountable for our deeds, which is terrifying to many of you. But then we get to this passage, which I think just shows you who God really is in the heart of Christ. It's right there in verse 14. If you're there, give me an amen. Oh, we are ready. Hebrews chapter 4, starting in 14, we're reading three verses today. Here's what it says. Therefore, since we have a high priest who has ascended into heaven... Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. 
The author says, Jesus was in heaven, came down here, was one of us, ascended into heaven, and because of this, hold on to your faith. He goes on, verse 15, he says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Isn't it beautiful? It's a powerful passage. It's, it's like an Oreo. You've got verse 14 and verse 16. They're like the cookies. They both have commands in them. One says, hold on to your faith. The other one says, go boldly to the throne of grace. And they are held together by the squishy middle good stuff that is the core of this message, verse 15. It's in verse 15 that you see Jesus standing arm in arm with humanity, standing in solidarity with humans, sinners. It's interesting that as we read verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, almost every Bible version says the word sympathize. How many of you, it says sympathize in your version? Yeah, a handful of you, Uh, quite a few of you. And I think sympathize is a good word. And if that's all this ever said, I think it would still be beautiful because sympathy is a beautiful thing. It's powerful. It's feeling pity and sorrow for somebody else's misfortune. It's hurting for someone else, even if you've never experienced it. Just over a month ago, our young adult pastor, Pastor Juan Martinez, he was, in, uh, he was playing basketball. One of the basketball nights that we have, we have them all the time over at Warehouse. And uh, he's there, he's playing basketball, and he, he goes to make a move, and he feels something hit the back of his leg. And so he, he snaps around quickly to see who just threw something at him, but there's nobody there. And he feels this pain in his leg, and he wonders what's happening. And he, he goes home that night, and the next day he goes to the doctors, and they do tests, and maybe even an MRI. Uh, there's a video of him, and I didn't bring it to you because it's a little graphic. But the, the, the doctor or the nurse, she's feeling up the backside of his leg, his calf, his ankle. And she says, there should be an Achilles tendon right here, but it's gone. All curled up inside of his leg somewhere. In fact, uh, he had to have surgery. Here's a picture of him right here. Look at him. What a great dude. Still, still ready, even if he's got surgery. And, and when he comes into staff meeting a, a few weeks later, he comes in with one of those little uh, scooters, you know, the ones where you prop your knee on and you just scoot around. I thought it was kind of, kind of fun looking, but not worth tearing my Achilles to ride around on. He rolls in and as, as soon as he comes in, all the rest of the pastors and staff, we all say, oh, we're so sorry, man. We know that's got to hurt so badly. I mean, none of us have had torn Achilles, but that just looks painful. And so we give him our sympathy, even if we've never experienced it, we can sympathize with him. Some of you probably sympathize with him, with him as he's preaching. Here's another picture of him. He, this was a, just a few weeks ago. He's uh, showing the no-toe look, or the, or the wearing toeless shoes there. Uh, poor guy. He's an active guy, and so to be tied up in recovery and, and physical therapy, it's hard for him. And so we sympathize with him. Even if we've never experienced it, we sympathize with him. And if this is all the heart of Christ did for us, if that was all it was, just sympathy, it'd be incredibly powerful. If all Jesus said to us was, I'm really sorry, humans, that you're having to experience a sinful world. That would mean so much to me if that's all he did. 
I'm really sorry that you have to go through this. It would show his love for us and how much he cares for us. But sympathy isn't all that the heart of Christ is like. You know, almost every translation says sympathy, except for the New International Version, which uses the word empathy. But even if your version says sympathizes and doesn't say empathizes, if it just sympathizes, you can read the context and know what the author is really trying to say because he uses this word for sympathy in Greek that's only used like this in one place in the whole New Testament, and it's right here. It's the only place. And it's the same idea of sympathizing with. Not sympathizing for, but sympathizing alongside, sympathizing with. It's like our English word co. Uh, we use this when we say words like cooperation. It's two people with each other working together. We use it when we say um, uh, co-parenting. It's two parents working with each other or, or uh, coordinating. It's the same thing. It's two people with each other. This word isn't saying that someone is having sympathy for you from a long ways away. It means just the opposite. It's this person is sympathizing with you, right next to you, right in the midst of what you're experiencing. In fact, as you read this passage, this verse 15, I think you could and maybe even should use both words, sympathizes. Jesus sympathizes and empathizes with us, both of them. In our pain, Jesus is pained. In our suffering, he suffers too, even though it's not his to suffer. The reason that Jesus is so close in solidarity with us is that the difficult path and journey that you are on isn't unique to you. He experienced it too. He knows what it's like to suffer. He's been there. He's done that. He knows the pain. For the last several months, I've been dealing with some pain in my left foot. It's called plantar fasciitis. Any, uh, any other plantar fasciitis painful people? Uh, just raise your hand. Let's see them. Yeah, th this is impressive. Yep. Uh, in first service, there was quite a few as well. It's awful. If you've ever experienced before, you know exactly what it is. I've talked with doctors in our church, and they've said, oh, well, try this. Try rolling a tennis ball or, or a, a frozen water bottle. You've tried that before, too. Take some Advil, it'll, it'll, uh, it'll release the inflammation in your fascia on the bottom of your foot. Try these things, and it's helped some for sure. I even had one of my good friends, uh, she bought me uh, a pair of these. Here's a picture of them. Ooh, these right here, these UFOs. You, yeah, anybody have these? No, nope, nobody has them. You need them. It's like walking on a cloud. They're amazing. Uh, she said, well, you might want to just use these as house slippers. Nah, they are my everyday go-to. It's fantastic. I love them. But here's the thing, I'm, I'm going to go to a doctor, and when I go to this doctor, and, I, and he, he puts me up on this exam table, and he asks me questions and starts looking at my foot, uh, it, he might say something like, it sounds like you have plantar fasciitis. I've heard of this before. I think this is a possible treatment. Uh, here's a remedy for it. And if he does that, I'll be thankful for that. But it, wouldn't it be completely different if I sit on that exam table and he, he feels the bottom of my foot and he, he, he says, or she says, I think you have plantar fasciitis and I've had it too and it's so painful and I know what you're experiencing. I know the pain every step you take. I've been there, I've done that. It's completely different, isn't it? 
See, Jesus is not Zeus, some untouchable, out-of-touch God that has no real connection with humanity. Yes, Jesus was a sinless man, but he wasn't a sinless superman. He's just like you and me. He woke up with bedhead just like many of you do. He probably had pimples when he was 13. Uh, I mean, he never would have been on the cover of Men's Health. The Bible describes him as someone that was just kind of an average Joe. He came as a normal man to be with normal men. He knows what it's like to be thirsty and hungry. He knows what it's like to be rejected and scorned and shamed. He's, he's been embarrassed and abandoned before. He knows what it's like to be falsely accused. He knows what it's like to be lonely. I mean, all of his friends abandoned him when he needed them the most. He knows what that feels like. Hey, if he were alive today, all of his Twitter followers and his Facebook friends, they would have completely unfriended him when he turned 33. Jesus knows exactly where you are, where you have been, and where you will been because he's experienced it too. He's been there. He's done that. He knows. And I don't know what you're experiencing right now. I don't know what you're going through, what hurts for you. Maybe it's heartache over loss. Maybe it's rejection. It's one of the most painful feelings ever, even rejection from family. Maybe it's frustrations and challenges at work. Uh, maybe it's feelings of uselessness or failure. But whatever you're feeling, Jesus has felt it too. He knows. He knows. Now, let's be really clear here because while Jesus knows what it's like to be human, he was always sinless. And while he stands in solidarity with the pain and suffering of humanity and temptation, he still lived a perfect life. But let me ask you this, does it, does it make Jesus any less connected to us because he lived a perfect life? I don't think so at all. In fact, I think it makes him even more connected to us, like he knows even better than we do what it's like to deal with temptation. C.S. Lewis writes these words, here it is on the screen. He says, you find the strength, the power, how powerful wind is by walking against it, not by lying down. As you strain against the wind, you know how powerful it is pushing back. The moment you lie down, you don't feel it anymore. It's like this with temptation too. As you push against temptation and you fight against the devil, and as you push against him, you know what it's like. But as soon as you quit, you have no idea what it's like to be pushing 10 minutes longer. Yet Jesus knows all temptation. He's been there, he's experienced it, and he never gave up. He knows better than you and I do what temptation feels like. But what I love about this passage, even more than the sympathy empathy, is what's put in verse 16. Let's read it again. It says this, and I'm going to add some words here at the beginning. Because Jesus knows, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. It's beautiful with confidence, because he knows, let us approach, because he knows. Not only does Jesus understand what it's like to be in our shoes, he's also the one that saves us. He's not stuck down in the pit of sin with us. He's the only one that can pull us out of the pit too. It's because of his sinlessness that we have salvation. 
And I love that, we, he, that, that Paul, or whoever the author is, uses this idea of the high priest. We talk about the high priest often, the Old Testament sanctuary model, but this high priest was so unique. Jesus is the example. Uh, this high priest was put in a position that was so different than anybody else because he came from among the people. He had to be one of the people to know what the people experienced, yet he also had to be separate from the people because he represented God to the people. He was one of the people, but also was separate from the people as this kind of example back and forth. He was the people, but he also atoned for the people just like Jesus did. And Jesus, our high priest, he's one and the same. He's one of us, yet he's the one that atones for our sins too, because he's got the power to save. The heart of Jesus, the heart of Christ, it's not scared of sin. Instead, it beats sympathetically for the sinner, not because Jesus sinned, but because he knows what it's like to fight sin and because he's the one that atones for our sins. When we think that when we get dirty with sin that Jesus would turn and run from us, it's just the opposite. He runs towards us. In fact, his natural impulse, his natural instinct is to move toward sin and suffering, not away from it. That's the heart of Christ. It's a heart that became one of us to experience life with us so that he could save us. I think everybody knows that misery loves company. Doesn't it just feel so much better when you're miserable if someone else is experiencing the misery with you? That's why we camp in groups. It's miserable. Let's all do it together. For as long as I can remember, as soon as I was able to start working, I had a job, multiple jobs, all the time. Uh, it's like jobs came to me. When I was in eighth or ninth grade, I had this job that, that kind of came to me. It was a, a neighbor of one of the church members in the church. It was an old lady. She lived up on top of a hill, and uh, she needed some help around the house. And so my mom would take me, drop me off at her house, and I'd work for a couple hours, and she'd give me some money. I'd, I'd clean stuff and organize things and, and, and fix things. And, and in the summertime, I would mow her yard. It wasn't a huge yard, but she'd pay me $20 to do this job. It took me an hour and a half, maybe two hours. That's pretty good money back then in the, the 1900s. <laughs> and uh, in the fall, you guys don't know what fall is, but some, in the northern regions, there's a fall. It gets cold and leaves fall off of trees. And she had a backyard covered in trees, maples, Tulip poplars, these are trees with big leaves, and when they all fall, it covers the whole yard, and it's a massive pile of leaves. It's a big job. And so the deal was, when the first fall came, when I was working for her, that she would also pay me $20 to do the backyard. And so I, I got there one day after school, my mom dropped me off, and I had my rake, I had my big black trash bags, and I was ready to go. Now her backyard was fenced in all the way around. You could only get into it by jumping the fence or by going through the house out the back door to the, to the backyard. And so I got there and I started raking. My mom left, raking away, stuffing leaves into trash bags, pitching them over the fence, more bags, pitching them over the fence. And I worked and worked and worked. It's getting colder. I'm hungry now. And I look around this yard. And it doesn't look like I've done anything. And I've been there two, three hours. Keep working along. Now, the longer I work, the, the more I realize that what I'm stuffing into bags is not just leaves, because this old lady had a dog, and the backyard was where the dog would go. 
And so there I am stuffing things into bags, pitching them over the fence. Four hours pass and that $20 is getting smaller by the minute. I'm about ready to just absolutely give up. This is miserable. I'm starving, it's freezing cold. This is, why, why am I doing this? This is dumb, I'm not even making money. I'm basically paying her to clean her yard up at this point. At about the time that I'm ready to quit and just start walking home, my dad shows up. His car comes to the curb and he stops. He gets out of the car and he walks over to the fence. He leans on the fence and kind of looks at me. And he could have said, wow, Matt, sucks to be you. <laughs> he could have said, man, this looks like a miserable job, buddy. I know this has got to be really tough for you. I'm really sorry you have to do that. But he didn't. Instead, he hopped the fence. And he came into the backyard and he grabs a rake and a trash bag and he puts his hands down into the nasty leaves and he fills bags with me and we pitch them over the fence until the job is done. He joined me in my misery experiencing what I experienced until we got the job done together. We have a friend who in our sorrow and our misery, he doesn't just lob a pep talk from heaven down to us saying, come on guys, you can do it. In fact, he can't hold himself at a distance. His heart is too bound to your heart to just do that. So instead he gets down in the misery with us to sympathize and empathize with us so that he can save us. And that is what the heart of Christ really looks like. Amen. Heavenly Father, today we marvel at the God that you are that became one of us so that you could save us. And we thank you, God, for loving us that much. God, we love you and we can't wait to see you. In Jesus' name. Amen.